U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I'm joined by the XO, the man with the plan, Kristoff. Hello, Dale. Uh, thank you very much for having me here, again. And listeners, thank you for being here, again, or for the first time. Absolutely. We love having you, whether it's your first time, your second time, your hundredth time. Well, not hundred. Is it hundredth time? I think we're over a hundred. Well, I will count repeat listens to their favorite episodes, and so maybe they're in the thousands, potentially. Mm, yeah, actually, listens are in the thousands. Mm-hmm. Yes, so we thank you guys. We love you. Shall we talk about uh, the Navy? Yes. So where we last off last time, we are in the Revolutionary War, and we were just about to get into the naval aspects of the war. So uh, shall we get underway? Absolutely, yes. So when the uh, war begins, the British had overwhelming naval superiority over, you know, everybody. They were the number one navy in the world, even though that their fleet was old and run down. They would actually blame this on a guy named Lord Sandwich. And he is, he was at this time the first Lord of the Admiralty. Is that the Earl of Sandwich? Inventor of the Sandwich? Uh, actually, the, it, 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 he, this is John Montagu, fourth Earl of Sandwich. Hmm. I know one of the Earls of Sandwich definitely invented the sandwich, supposedly because he was such a compulsive gambler that he refused to leave the card table to have a meal. And so he told his servant, hey, just put some stuff between some bread and bring it on down. And that is our sandwich. Thank you, gambling. That is actually very, very correct. That is the rumor. Um, it was named after Lord Sandwich at the gambling table. Uh, and because John Montagu was the Earl of Sandwich, others began to order, quote, the same as Sandwich. And that's when the Sandwich was born. Huh. Isn't that wild? But, I mean, uh, it's also all uh, uh, rumor because we don't know exactly what the heck happened. I understand. Uh, so, during the first three years of the war, the Royal Navy was used was used mostly to transport troops for, you know, the land war. Mm. And they were also used to protect commercial shipping. As, you know, navies are still used in modern times. Uh, the Americans had no ships of the line, and they re relied extensively on privateering to harass the British. So at this point in time... My audio got a bit messed up, so unfortunately we are missing a piece here. I'm sorry, everybody. Back to the show. Last you spoke, John Paul Jones, and I said he was an awesome dude. Father of the American... Uh, father of the U.S. Navy. Yeah, he became the first great American naval hero when he captured the HMS Drake on April 24th of 1778 which was the first victory for any American vessel in British waters. That's quite an accomplishment, especially when, at this point, the UK is so dominant. Yes. Uh, during the second period, the successive interventions of, you know, France and Spain, France and Spain, yeah, of France and Spain, and the Netherlands, it extended the Navy war until it was being fought from the West Indies to the Bay of Bengal. Wow. I didn't realize it was that big of a scope. Yeah, it was huge. Our little spat with the English covered a huge amount of area. Uh, this included operations that had already been being fought in America for, you know, protecting the commerce. And naval campaigns on a huge scale carried out by the fleets of the rest of the maritime powers. In Europe, Spain entered the war as uh, a friend to France with the goal of recapturing uh, Gibraltar and Minacora. 
uh, that because it had been captured by the Anglo-Dutch force in 1704. So they were like, ah, this is a perfect opportunity to get this stuff back. So they besieged Gibraltar for more than three years. Wow. And the British just stayed there very stubbornly and actually got resupplied twice. Well, they were resupplied once after a guy named Admiral Rodney and his victory over Juan de Langara in the uh, 1870 Moonlight Battle. And then when uh, Admiral Richard Howey came in in 1782, the uh, efforts by the Franco-Spanish friendship to capture Gibraltar were unsuccessful in the end. What an incredibly defensible position. I just, Gibraltar has, yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. They did have one success in during that time. That was when they uh, captured Menorca. And Spain kept it after the war. They did have some ambitious plans. They were planning an invasion of Great Britain in 1779. Wow. But, you know, it did not happen. So we're going to talk about some European naval battles. We're going to first talk about the North Channel Naval Duel. It was a uh, one-ship on ship battle between the uh, USS Ranger and the HMS Drake. The guy in charge of the Ranger was John Paul Jones. And the guy on the English side in command was George Burden. Burden? Like, I have too many burdens in my life and I must free myself of them? Burden? Yes, it's such a burden to be English. Well, I just... I keep thinking about the the history of English last names like Cooper or Smith. They're related to the professions that you had. Uh, Fletcher. Burden. I'm trying to associate that with, hey, that's just my job. I'm the town burden. It's... Well, it is spelled with a U instead of an E. Okay. Well, but that, that's you know. better. Uh, maybe a little bit. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. I think... Uh, I'd rather be a burden than a burden. So as I hinted to you before, the uh, American Revolutionary War was not confined to soil. Even, you know, before uh, we had foreign powers to help us. And uh, these were done both by the Continental Navy and the privateers. Uh, for example, American captains had been making raids into British waters, capturing merchant ships which they took into French ports, even though French w France was neutral, they, they still take them over there and, and sold them off. So uh, the Ranger, which was a uh, Continental Navy sloop of war, sailed from Brest on April 10th of 1778 and headed for the coasts of the Solway Firth. This is where he had first learned to sail, to be... Uh, as a little uh, fun little trinket of information. He had a unsuccessful attempt to raid the port of Whitehaven in Cumberland between April 17 and 18th during the night, and he started harassing shipping in the North Channel. I heard that he was unsuccessful with that raid because basically his, his crew got drunk. Like, they're like, hey, we've got, we're here, we can destroy all these ships, but they're like, oh, look, there's a pub. And then that was kind of the, that was the evening. Um, I believe you are correct. One of the, the few uh, attacks on British soil, which I thought was very interesting. They haven't, they weren't previously invaded for like centuries before until uh, John Paul Jones showed up. Yeah, until these damn American uh, upstarts. Right. On uh, April 20th, 21st, that during that night, the uh, ranger entered Belfast Low in Northern Ireland. They had planned to seize a Royal Navy ship moored off of Carrick Fergus, which was the HMS Drake. He was unsuccessful and returned to Whitehaven, and he did achieve the first key target of his mission, though, 
which was landing a large party at the harbor in during the night of April 22nd to 23rd and setting a merchant ship on fire. So those of you who play the uh, U.S. the U.S. Navy uh, history podcast drinking game, drink arson. Yeah, there's a lot of that. <laughs> uh, they fail. They followed this up in, within a couple hours with another raid at the Scottish seashore mansion of the Earl of Selkirk near Kurt Cudbright. And uh, by the time everybody had learned that uh, there were, had been raids on English soil, the ranger was already sailing away. What? That's, so, su- that's super bold. I mean, I, I just keep thinking about that situation. It's like, hey... Uh, yeah, they're the most powerful navy in the world, but I don't like them, and so I'm going to sail into their port and burn their ships, and then I'm out of here. That's just incredible. Just Yeah. So uh, John Paul Jones, he actually uh, recruited his crew by an advert, and it promised them to the opportunity to make their fortune, as they said back then. Which it was actually a goal that could be achieved by privateering against the British, the merchant ships at least. But because Ranger was a Navy vessel and not a privateer, more British ships had been sunk on the missions than captured. This was to avoid diverting too many crew members to the uh, captured ships and have them sail them back to France. Because once they get back to shore, they may not come back. Oh, yeah. And, you know, to a small extent, Jones was actually a failure as a Navy commander. Because the crew blamed him for what uh, they thought was a strategic error. Which allowed a British customs vessel to escape after being fired on. So this motivated him to capture a Royal Navy ship from its moorings. But, you know, of course, it's a naval ship, not a cargo vessel. So it didn't have any cargo that could be sold for profit. So that did not uh, bolster the crew to his purposes because they had no cargo. They only have trained sailors with guns. I would dare say that's the opposite of what they were looking for. Yeah. So, just after dawn on April 24th, Jones published... Well, there was an account that Jones published in his French autobiography about April 24th. Quote, I ran a great risk of being killed or thrown into this... Because, you know, he was ticking off his crew. Uh-huh. But, you know, the the crew, it wasn't really too good for them right now anyway because of the wind of the tide. It pretty much prevented them from leaving anyway. And then, but they were watching the Drake and they, with their little spy glasses. And so it showed them that they might not have to go back to uh, Carrick Fergus at, at all because the uh, boat was preparing to leave port. Oh. So uh, the, the truth is uh, the Drake was getting ready to go after the Ranger ever since... Uh, the ranger came and paid them the visit for the first time. They took on volunteers from the Carrick Fergus area and blostered the crew from 100 to around 160. It's a lot of that's a lot. How big was this ship? Was this like a a sloop or a... Yeah, it was a sloop of war. She had 20 guns, but officially only had 16, but they they got her up to 20. Okay. That's a lot of guys on that one ship. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I do not have a picture of her. Um, but here is a picture of uh, the Constellation, which was a Navy sloop of war. So that might give you a little bit of a, uh, an idea of what uh, this thing would have looked like. He's, oh, I, it might help if I hit the ah, enter button so you could see it. I can see it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a, yeah, that's a lot of guns. Yes. Um, now, a lot of these extra crew members were actually not sailors. They were quote-unquote landsmen. 
so they were going to be used for close quarter combat. Uh, In other it. words, boarding action. Um, but also, they had another problem when they brought all these guys on. The uh, acting gunner said that uh, there was not enough cartridge paper to make up ammunition for all of these extra guys. And uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, a lot of guys, head guys on the uh, Drake were actually sick. They were missing their gunner. Ooh. They were missing their master's mate. And they were missing their boatswain. And he was actually shot dead, so he was never coming back. And they all were also missing a lieutenant, and he was also dead. He died of a fever a couple of days earlier. And the captain, George Burden, was actually reported to be in poor health. So he was there, but he was sick. But, you know, this is the Royal Navy. We can't let all these little things stop us. That's right. Mere uh, inconsequential events to the greater purpose of the glory of the king. Yes. So after an hour, a boat was sent to get a closer look at the ranger. And this may have possibly been a key turning point in history. Jones opted to try a small uh, change of the plan that he used to try to capture the custom vessel a couple of days earlier. He hid most of the crew and the, his big guns and just act like he was some dumb fisherman. <laughs> Where do you hide guns like that on a ship like that? Um, very carefully. Oh, yeah, I guess. There we go. Depending on whether these uh, guns were just on the top deck, if it's just they're just on the top deck, you just move them back so they're out of, out of sight, maybe cover them with like a tarp or something. Oh, I see. It, yeah, it's not like they're being inspected on ship. They're just right. passing by. Eh, that makes sense. And if they were uh, like below the main deck and they had gun ports, you just bring them back and seal up the gun ports, I guess. Maybe. Yeah. Then it's just uh, these doors are for decoration. No more. Mm. But, you know, unlike with the customs vessel, this worked. And the crew of the... Uh, reconnaissance boat were captured and this actually helped the morale of the americans and one of the prisoners mentioned a large number of volunteers that had gone aboard the drake they were like oh we got like 60 more fighting men haha you can't take the drake oh thank you for giving us that very important information yes so the breaks the drake starts getting underway moving very slowly out across the uh, lock and there was a bonus for the British. At around 1300, a uh, small boat came out carrying more volunteer, or at least one more volunteer. It was a uh, Navy, Royal Navy lieutenant named William Dobbs. He brought with him a copy of a letter from Whitehaven explaining the... Uh, details of this mystery ship that they uh, had been looking at. So now they know that that's the ranger. So uh, the wind and tides start to become more favorable, favorable in the afternoon. And so the ranger moves slowly out of Belfast Lock into the North Channel. And they were just leading the Drake. They were not trying to trying to leave. They were trying to lure them into more favorable conditions. Makes sense. I mean, it's all strategy, right? You want to set yourself up for the best possible position that you can. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. So at about 1800, they were within hailing distance, so they could shout at each other. Jones, he had uh, American naval colors flying, and that meant that uh, Dobbs was telling the truth. This was an American ship. Yeah. So this duel would be considered a small scale dress rehearsal for the uh, battle for Jones's battle with HMS Serpius in uh, in, uh, in the next year. Uh, Drake had been built as a merchant ship with defensive capability, 
and it was brought to the Royal Navy to help fill in the gaps when, you know, all those ships started being sent to the U.S. Uh, the hull was actually the wrong shape for rapid battle maneuvers, and they were not designed, the hull was not designed to resist cannon fire at all. Oh, no. Now, the Ranger, on the other hand, had been built to fight, and it was actually modified by Jones for maximum efficiency, as he called it. Uh, there were ports for 20 guns, but he found it safe to only assault 18 six-pound guns. So he he found out that, you know, if I put in those extra two, this is going to really screw me up. <laughs> so he had a total broadside weight of 54 pounds, and the Drake had a total broadside weight of 40 pounds. So the Ranger is bigger. It seems like a decidedly better ship in every capacity, like it has a, a hull that's built to take cannon fire, more guns, it's heavier. What Am I missing something? I guess just the British have potentially more experience? The British would have potentially more experience, and also they have about 60 extra guys. Yeah. So if they could grapple and board the Ranger, that would be a lot of trouble for uh, John Paul Jones. So now that the formalities are completed, we see you, you're the enemy, let's fight. The ranger, she makes a sharp turn and fires a broadside into the drake, who was following them. Now, the British are not able to uh, reply with their own broadside immediately. Uh, but when they did, they found out they had a very serious problem. Uh, they found out that when they put in a full charge of powder, their guns were unstable. Oh, no. Yeah, they tended to tip forward. And uh, in the case with the uh, pairs of guns at the aft end of the ship, a lot of them were subject to the rise and falls of the waves, which means that they could skid almost anywhere as they were fired. Oh, my gosh. Which means that this prevented a lot of mortal danger to the gun crews. I'm guessing at some point... I don't know what the protocol would be, but I'm guessing once you see those guns are unstable, you just don't use them, right? It's not like, or do you just try to power through and move it such that they can be used, but potentially utilizing more men? And that sounds like a, no pun intended, like a burden either way. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you don't quit. You're, you can't quit. You're in a fight for, you know, your life. There's a um, a phrase we use in the modern uh, military, work the problem. In other words, you figure out what the problem is and you fix it and you get you stay in the fight. Adapt, overcome? You, adapt and overcome could work too, but uh, it's, we, we call it working the problem. Okay. Um, now, the original gunner may have known about these problems and maybe the gunners made as well. But neither of them were aboard the Drake. They were sick. Uh, one was sick right. and the other one had been captured. was one of the ones that captured earlier in the day. Uh, after a couple more broadsides, they found more problems. Uh, shrapnel from Ranger's third broadside hit Lieutenant Dobbs in the head. Oh. Taking him out of the battle. The conditions on the Drake's gun deck were so bad and unpredictable that the powder monkeys eventually stopped wanting to do their job. These were the boys that brought uh, charges uh, charges of gunpowder up for the uh, for the cannons and fire-resistant boxes. And back in this time, most of those on both sides, they were pretty much manned by preteens or uh, young teenagers, correct? Yeah, these were boys. Yeah. Uh, twice the ship's master had to go below to uh, urge the uh, acting gunner to be more efficient in supplying powder uh, because opportunities for more broadsides were starting to be missed. They'd come up within range of the broadside and nothing would fire. Be well, if you don't got powder, you can't shoot nothing. Oh, for sure, yeah. But that's just that's a bad situation. 
They also had another problem, which was that the slow matches, which is what they used to fire the guns, kept falling into their safety tubes and going out. Uh, but they also found that their four-pound guns could not penetrate the ranger's armor anyway. So Drake tried copying the technique the Americans had been using from the beginning. They aimed at the masts, sails, and riggings to, you know, try to cripple her and they could run away or, or come in and board. Uh, they did get together, or they did get close together, but never close enough to be able to be grappled. Probably because Jones knew of the extra 60 guys waiting just oh, for yeah. that to happen. <laughs> uh, but in addition to the cannons, each side was firing small arms at each other. And, uh, yeah, the Drake didn't do very good at that either. Remember the uh, the cartridge paper issue I told you about earlier? Yes. Yeah. They didn't find any more. That's a problem. So, yeah, they, they pretty much ran out of cartridge paper pretty quickly. So that meant that they also had to load their guns the slow way, pouring in the right amount of power, putting in the shot, you know, stamping it down. So Whew. they were passing around musket balls in the armorer's hat. And uh, they only had two powder horns to share between all of the guys. Oh, my gosh. That is, that is not good. No. So all of this means that the Americans were, of course, much better organized. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, tipped, it tipped the, the power in the Americans' direction. Uh, Drake did succeed in killing one guy. They, uh, they killed a guy named Lieutenant Samuel Wallingford uh, by musket. Ooh. Um, then they did have two guys who uh, died from falling from the masts. But that would... that's, that's part of any... That's just part of sailing at that time. Right. Uh, they, the Drake lost four. Um, Captain... Burden himself, he was struck in the head by a musket ball. Uh, so now that the captain lieutenant out of action, uh, Drake was now under the command of the master, a guy named John Walsh. So now the Drake sails and rigging are in tatters because of Ranger's broadsides. The masts and uh, yard arms are seriously damaged as well. So the sloop is now pretty much dead in the water. She can't even turn to uh, bring her broadside to bear. So now she's DIW. She cannot load her guns fast enough. And the uh, small arms fighters are now, you know, pretty much retreating to cover because what are they going to do? Yeah. They're sitting ducks. Yeah. There's only about a dozen people left on Drake's main deck. Uh, after the captain was dead, the two remaining petty officers on deck went to the uh, master and advised him that they need to strike their colors and surrender. And after, you know, talking with them about it for a couple minutes, he was like, you know what? You're right. So when you say talking to the master to strike the colors, I understand that is to raise the white flag and surrender. But who is the master? Is And is he the traditional person that would decide that or do that? Uh, first of all, striking the colors does not mean putting up the white flag. That means just taking down your colors to signal surrender. Oh, okay. You don't fly anything. The master is the master of the boat. It is a position on the ship. I see. Pretty high-ranking position. Yeah, I imagine. Would would they normally have gone to the captain to make this decision? Yeah, well, the captain's dead. Right, yeah. In That's this case, why I they went to the why. master, because he's the one in command now. Okay. Thank you for clearing that up. I mean, oh, you're for the welcome. for the listeners. Yes, yes. Now, uh, when they went to uh, strike their colors, they found that the their colors had already been shot away. So, uh, Mister Walsh shouted and waved his hat instead. We surrender! We surrender! Cease fire! This uh, this fight, according to uh, John Paul Jones's logs, lasted one hour and five minutes. So uh, 35 men were sent from Ranger to the Drake to take charge and assess the damage. 
and the next three days were spent making repairs while they drifted slowly north and northwest between Ireland and Scotland. Uh, a cargo brig came close, and the ranger captured them too. Whoa. And they used that as extra accommodation. Uh, they had previously captured six Irish fishermen on the first expedition. They allowed them, along with three sick Irish sailors, to take a boat and go home. That's nice. I mean... Yeah. And they they didn't leave empty-handed. They got uh, some sails from the Drake, and Jones gave them some money. Oh. Yeah. Uh, when they got back, they reported the concern that Jones was uh, showing for Lieutenant Dobbs because he was still in a real bad way. He's the one that got shrapnel in his head, right? Yes. Uh, and while all this was happening, the uh, Royal Navy had sent out proper warships to chase them down. But even though, you know, Drake was really messed up, they actually never caught sight of uh, these two boats slowly sailing away. Uh, the only real problem Jones had was that uh, he put on in charge of the Drake a guy named Lieutenant Thomas Simpson. And at one point during the, the voyage, they sailed out of sight. Oh. Yeah. Now, the uh, news of this battle reached France much faster than Jones did, and the Americans were welcomed as heroes. As for the British, they had learned a lesson here. Uh, they learned that the Royal Navy could not defend British shipping against American raiders. It could not defend British coasts against American raiders. Yeah. It could not even defend its own fighting vessels against American raiders. They learned that they were not the top dogs anymore. Militia regiments were uh, quickly redeployed to the coastal areas. They equipped seaports with artillery to defend themselves against further raids. And they pretty much banded together a lot of volunteers as a, lance, as a last uh, line of defense. And from then on, the press paid very close attention to John Paul Jones. Um, he was, at this point in time, there were starting to be rumors of murder and piracy from him. Oh. All lies. Vicious slander, I say as an American. Yeah. Um, and when he got back to France, though, he wrote, uh, a kind and thoughtful letter to the Earl of Selkirk and to the family of Lieutenant Dobbs, who had unfortunately passed away a couple of days after the battle. But at this time, John Paul Jones has now gone from being an obscure Scottish-American, go Scottish-Americans, to a international star. Wow. And uh, this demonstrated that the world's most powerful nation was as vulnerable to attack as any other. And that's an important message to send to... Um, I'm sure this really uh, lifted the Dutch, French, and Spanish. Oh, yeah. Everybody's like, look, the English aren't impervious. This little ragtag rebel group was able to soundly defeat the British. Right. So, yeah, that is, that's very, very bad for them. Uh, so that's the North Channel Naval Duel. How are you feeling about that one? Uh, impressed. I'm very impressed. The, the one thing that keeps going through my mind is how before the battle, John Paul Jones took his time. I think he, it seemed like there were four or five hours that transpired between when they could have begun the battle and then how he positioned himself for the favorable conditions. And then he attacked. Yeah, well, that's half of the battle is just jockeying for position, for mm -hmm. favorable position. The other half is actually shooting at each other. Right. And uh, I think those that have not been in the military or may not think about that aspect of the strategy involved and how long it can take, because you said the battle itself took just over an hour. Yeah. Most, and that was just the shooting part, but most of the time was I'm going to get in position so that when it, it comes down to it, it'll be done quickly. 
Right. It took them about two hours to uh, maneuver, to meet, to declare hostilities, and then fight. Start the fight. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, it's amazing. And I'm sure we'll see this as we go through the Revolutionary War, but just kind of what a, what a great way for America to kick it off. You know what I mean? Mm. Yes, this was a very, very uh, influential American victory. So that's going to bring us to the Battle of Flamborough Head. Oh, yes. Uh, this was between the U.S. and uh, with U.S. and France versus the U.K. Uh, the commander on the U.S. and France's side was John Paul Jones. And the commander on the UK side was Richard Pearson. Um, this was actually a pretty big battle. There was one schooner, one brig, two frigates, and an unidentified ship on the US side. And on the UK side, one fifth rate man of war and one sloop of war. So uh, during September of 1779, there were four vessels that uh, remained from a seven vessel strong squadron that left uh grox off the orient in france on for august 14th this was under the command of john paul jones and he uh was going pretty much around the uk just trying to create as much havoc as he can <laughs> he went uh up to ireland over to Scotland, down the East Coast, just, you know, nanny, nanny, boo, boo. Now, they were sailing under the U.S. flag, but all the vessels were actually loaned or donated by France. I did not know that. And they had French captains, except for one, which was the Alliance, and this had been built in Ambersey, Massachusetts, specifically for the Continental Navy. And it was still... Captained by a Frenchman, though. And he was not happy about John Paul Jones being in charge. Yeah, that sounds like a French uh, attitude. Yes. Uh, the crews, they had American, French, and British sailors. The British were captured by Americans, and they were offered to get a chance out of captivity by, you know, serving aboard an American vessel. Okay. So on the evening of September 22nd, Jones, who was aboard the Boham Richard, was, he was accompanied by the, uh, a small brig, the Vengeance, and they were off of Spurn Head. They were trying to capture, or they, they wanted to try to capture a few prizes that came from the Humber Estuary. But he ended up, deciding to go north when darkness fell and to rendezvous with his frigates, the Alliance and Paulus, which had, you know, separated from them further up the coast. Shortly after midnight, uh, two vessels were seen. So they, they put up the signal lanterns and the two vessels did not give them a response that would identify them as his two, uh, other vessels. So he called general quarters. And when daylight approached at around 0530, there was a checkered flag hoisted on the mizzenmast. And they finally figured out who these vessels were. It was the Alliance of the Poles. So is that, do they have a checkered flag typically? Or is that a, or is that a more common naval flag that indicates something else well they use different flags for uh different communications and then they would say uh hey this this means that we're part of the same squadron this flag means we're part of the same squadron and then later they could say okay this flag now means that uh the captain has diarrhea or something you know well that's a very flexible communication <laughs> and flags it's pretty cool well i mean you'd set these before the rules yeah. before using them. Yeah, I got you. Uh, the uh, captains of the other boats had actually uh, said, uh, you know, if these guys were not British, we need to get the hell out of here. 
Yeah. Which, you know, Sean Paul Jones is like, well, this isn't good because, you know, these are like one of the best, these are some of the best ships out here. And, you know, these guys are much more maneuverable. We need them. So, you know, that's the British. I mean, the, uh, so he, he, the French weren't happy with John Paul Jones and John Paul Jones were not happy with the French. Makes sense. Um, so early in that afternoon, uh, once all the confusion was done and they had like, oh, we're all friends. Yay. They saw a brig in Bridlington Bay. So at around 1530, a small schooner that they had actually just captured the previous day was sent to the brig with a 15 man boarding party. Now there is some confusion about, uh, why they sent the, the, this, uh, this, this, uh, or this schooner, uh, but it, it wasn't because the brig was in very shallow water, but because the main squadron was on its way to investigate a sighting of a ship further north, near Flamborough Head. Uh, so shortly after they sent that schooner ahead, Alliance, who had been a bit ahead of the others, hoisted a signal and then went to full speed. They raised full sails and started going. They saw two large vessels in the distance so they immediately recalled the schooner by firing a signal gun and the entire squadron set sail towards these two boats so uh, a little bit about the, the the boats that they see they saw um uh september 15th there was a convoy of over 50 ships whoa that had that had been trading with ports in the Baltic and had set sail from a uh, meeting place off of the Norwegian coast at the mouth of the Skagerrak Channel to cross the North Sea. Uh, different ships did leave before Britain came into the site because they were heading for other ports such as Leith and the River Tyne. But uh, when they came into sight of the Yorkshire coast... On uh, September 23rd, there were still a little bit over 40 still in the convoy. Uh, a lot of them carrying timber and iron. And they were bound for ports all around the southern half of the British Isle. They were going from Hull and Bristol and Waterford in Ireland. Now, the uh, convoy did receive warning from Scarborough that there was an enemy squadron in the vicinity. The uh, A number of ships ignored the signals that the uh, their escort ship, the HMS Serpentis, fired to say, hey, guys, stay close so I can protect you. I am the one with 44 guns. Right. So early in the afternoon as they approached Flamborough Head, the lookouts of the uh, ships in the front saw danger in Burlington Bay. They started to uh, attack very quickly and attempted to run for Scarborough. Separus put on all of her sails, so full speed ahead, to get between the merchant vessels and who they thought were probably the Americans. And there was another boat, which was smaller, called the Countess of Scarborough. She stayed with the uh, colony and, you know, shepherded the the. the the sheep, the water sheep. Well, that's good. I mean, you want to, if you're able to divide it up that way, that's that's probably best. Yeah. So at around 1600, with the convoy to their north and the uh, possible bad guys to their south, the captain of the Serpius, a guy named Richard Pearson, signaled the countess to come on back we are going to go fight so as the squadron uh caught up to the uh Na royal navy vessels they made sure to position themselves so that the uh possible enemy could not sail around them very easily and you know reach the uh merchant ships so as the alliance is in the lead 
they are taking stock of the situation and see what's going on. They start slowing down because uh, we need to let the rest of the fleet catch up to us. Smart. You know, except for the itty bitty schooner because they just weren't fast enough. So at around 1800, Commodore Jones ordered Paulus to ride directly in his wake. So right behind him. Oh. And this was to confuse the uh, other team about the strength of his squadron. That's very clever. About half an hour later, he hoisted signals ordering, ordering all of his vessels to form a single file line of battle. This was to make best use of the broadsides as they passed by the two British ships. Um, Captain Landis, who, uh, according to him, had a lot of formal training in naval leadership and tactics, so he decided he was going to do something different. Oh, no. He used Alliance's superior handling to sail off to one side against the wind. And in order to prevent them from sailing right past and chasing the convoy, Captain Thomas Piercy of the Countess of Scarborough had to do the same thing, which left Serpius alone with the uh, remaining three ships of the American fleet. So about an hour later, the Boham Richard was within pistol shot of the Serpius. Um, in... Now that the uh, dark was following, uh, falling, Pearson hailed the uh, potentially, quote-unquote, hostile ship to ask uh, a few questions. More, more uh, the, the standard questions are, hey, what's your name of the boat, and where are you from? You know, things of that nature. Yeah, like a, like a dating app. Uh, the answer was, you know, was a couple of evasive answers. And uh, it was either, we're not sure, it was either followed by a pistol shot or a broadside. That's, uh, that's a very firm way to say, leave me alone. Uh, well, it's a firm way of saying, hey, we're your enemy. Oh. And we just got the first shot off at you, dummies. Yeah, that, that too. But uh, the Serpius was ready. She answered with a broadside of her own. Uh, a couple minutes later, Landis was within range and fired his own broadside at the Countess of Scarborough. And Percy, of course, was also ready, and he replied very soon afterwards. All right. So here's what we're going to do. The battle has started, and we're going to finish it next week. Oh, cliffhanger. We, uh, we, we're going to finish this battle next time, so if you want to know what happens... You gotta come back. Yeah. Don't even mess with, like, the library or internet. This right here, this podcast is the source for the conclusion of this story. <laughs> All right. So, at the end of every episode, we like to honor one of our fallen heroes. And we're going to honor someone from the army today. We are going to honor Captain Daniel Nimham. His hometown was Fishkill, New York, and he served in the Continental Army. His unit was the Stockbridge Indian Company, and his date of sacrifice was August 31st, 1778, killed in action in Cortlands Ridge, New York. He was 52 years old, approximately. Daniel Nimham was a diplomat, a warrior, and the last leader of the Whippinger tribe in New York's Hudson Valley. He was fighting for the British in the French and Indian War and against them in the Revolutionary War. Nimham was commissioned as captain in the Continental Army, and he was with General George Washington at Valley Forge, and later gave his life for the American cause, refusing to surrender in the Battle of Kingsbridge. Uh, prior to the Revolutionary War, the Whippinger people lived along the eastern banks of the Hudson River from New York's Manhattan Island to Connecticut. In most Algonquian languages, Whippinger can be translated as Easterner. Their yeah. name for what was later called the Hudson River was Muhiyanatak, 
or the river that flows both ways because of the incoming flow of the ocean tide against the river's natural current. The Whippinger people lived in seasonal camps, regularly moving to following the changing availability of fish, game, and plant life, and later developing the practice of agriculture, such as beans, corn, squash, sunflower, and tobacco. They had established temporary settlements along the Hudson, sometimes surrounded by a wooden palisade, which was defensive walls made of tree trunks. Through the 16 and 1700s, the region hosted a variety of native tribes, including Munsi, also called the Lenape, the Mohawken, the Mohawk, smaller bands, Africans, and Dutch traders. And according to the National Park Service, the relationships between these groups range from cooperative trade to exploitive slavery and outright warfare. Uh, as war, epidemic diseases, and intermingling with other area tribes reduced the Wappingers' numbers to the hundreds, Daniel Neham was born sometime around 1726. Different cultures colliding, trading, adapting to each other was commonplace in the region. And by the mid-1700s, Nimham had encountered European settlers of the valley as a young man. He learned English and kept friendly relations with them. As a, an adult, he became the Sockham of his people. As a experienced warrior and diplomat, Nimham and some 300 Wappinger men fought for, fought for British during the French and Indian War. At this time, New York and Connecticut were colonies under the British crown. Nimham and Wappinger and the Wappinger people became embroiled in a dispute when the family of Adolphus Philipsy, who was a wealthy New York City merchant, who made a expended land claim into Wappinger territory. Daniel Nimham had developed a reputation for diplomacy and traveled to England to petition his case. Returning home, his case had come before the New York Common Council in 1765. According to the American Battlefield Trust, quote, with a questionable deed presented by the defendant and hesitance to set a adverse precedent, the council ruled against Nimham and the Wappinger. Having fought for the British crown, the decision left a bitter taste in the mouths of the Wappingers. When the colonies revolted against England and declared independence on July 4th, 1776, Daniel Nimham and his people joined the cause. He saw the value of the Patriot cause and likely understood the possibility of negotiating the return of Wappinger land if he was to fight alongside the colonists. Nimham was given a commission as a captain in the Continental Army. He was an essential force for the American cause, having, having recruited warriors from native communities stretching from Canada to, do, to the Ohio Valley. Daniel's son, Abraham Nimham, was given command of the 60-man Stockbridge, Stockbridge Indian Company based out of Stockbridge, Massachusetts. A Hessen officer, Johann von Ewald, recalled, quote, their costume was of a shirt of coarse linen down to the knees, long trousers also of linen down to the feet, on which they wore shoes of deerskin, and the head was covered with a hat made of bast, or plant fiber. Their weapons, were, their weapons were a rifle or musket, a quiver with some twenty arrows, and a short battle axe, which they knew how to throw very skillfully. Through the nose and in the ears they wore rings, and on their heads only the hair of the crown remained standing in a circle the size of a dollar piece, the remainder being shaved off bare. They pull out with their pincers all the hairs of the beard as well as those on all other parts of the body. Whoa. When the fighting began, Daniel Nimham joined his son's Stockbridge Company militia scouts. Daniel and Abraham served alongside General George Washington at Valley Forge and fought in the Battle of Saratoga and in the fighting at Cambridge, Massachusetts. They also supported troops led by General Marquis de Lafayette. Serving under Virginian General Charles Scott in 1778, the Stockbridge Militia Company was assigned to patrol the northern border of New York City, which was then controlled by the British, and gather intelligence on enemy movements. On August 20th, 1778, the Stockbridge Company ambushed a British force north of New York City, killing one light cavalryman and wounding another. News of the attack spread, and the British put together a force of 500 British regular troops, Hessians, and Loyalists, 
On August 31st, 1778, the British set a trap for the Stockbridge militia on Cortlandt's Ridge in what is today the Bronx of New York City. Nimham's 60 warriors were drawn into the open upon sighting a group of Hessian forces, and British Lieutenant Colonel John Graves Simcoe's light infantry struck and hit the Stockbridge Company's left flank. Surrounded and outnumbered more than 8 to 1, the Stockbridge Company fought back in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Simcoe later described the bloody scene that became known as the Battle of Kingsbridge, or the Stockbridge Massacre. Quote, the Indians fought most gallantly. They pulled more than one of the cavalry from their horses. Simcoe recounted that Daniel Nimham called out to his warriors that, quote, he was old and would stand and die there. He was cut down and killed by Private Edward Wright, a British light cavalryman. Abraham Nimham would also be lost in the... In New York City's Van Cortlandt Park, a chief Nimham Memorial Monument has been placed on the field where the Wappinger, now called Stockbridge, warriors gave their lives for the American cause. In Putnam County, New York, overlooking the Hudson River, Mount Nimham has been named in his honor. In the town of Fishkill, New York, sculptor Michael Kiropane was commissioned to create a bronze statue of the great Wappinger Sockham, Daniel Nimham. The statue standing on the Wappinger's ancestral land was dedicated in a ceremony on June 11, 2022. After American independence was won, General Washington wrote that the Stockbridge remained firmly attached to us and we and have fought and bled by our side, that we consider them as friends and brothers. With so many Stockbridge men lost, growth for the tribe was difficult. Despite the service in the Continental Army and their friendship and alliance, land pressures continued after the Revolutionary War. Survivors and families of the fallen Stockbridge Company combined with other native tribes and moved to Wundia County in mid-state New York. When construction of the Erie Canal began after the War of 1812, land pressures again forced the Stockbridge to migrate, this time to Bowler, Wisconsin, 60 miles northwest of Green Bay. The Stockbridge Munsee Band of Mohawken Indians is now federally recognized as an, as an American Indian nation. So, Captain Daniel Nimham, thank you. Thank you. All right, XO, please kindly take us out. All right. Well, again, thank you, listeners, for uh, indulging us in this review of our history and um, joining us on the journey to find out more about what happened. If you want to learn more, if you want to contact us, um, you can certainly do so uh, the email address is us navy history podcast at gmail.com we are also on x.com or twitter however you prefer to say it i've heard it both ways at usn history pod you can tweet us there or post us there whatever you want to call that uh we, we can, can also call it zwitter zwitter oh Let's do that. We, we may start a trend. <laughs> you may join us on Zwitter. Uh, additionally, if you'd like to join our Discord, please do. You can interact with other listeners and us and uh, tell us what you really think. Uh, finally, we are on YouTube. And if you're listening on YouTube, I don't need to tell you this. If you're not listening on YouTube, I'll say, hey, you can also listen to us on YouTube instead of your regular podcast app. Wherever you're at, please, please rate us, um, give us some feedback so we know how to improve, or just celebrate the greatness that you already listened to. Either way, we're good. Uh, so thank you very much again, and back to you, Captain. Well, that's going to be it for us today. We're going to wish you guys a fair winds and following seas. See you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Mm -hmm.